0: Standby for Places presents Ben Franklin, An Ingenious Life, written and performed by Ray Flint, directed by Eric Scotto, also featuring Gabby Van Horn, Dana Watkins, and Kevin Sebastian.
1: It's an evening in 1788, a year after the fledgling United States of America adopted its new constitution. Amid the threat of rain, people have gathered in the study of Ben Franklin's Market Street home in Philadelphia, not far from the harbor. They've come to hear America's founding grandfather reflect on his life and aspirations for this new country
2: powerful storm is brewing. Welcome, friends. It pleases me that you've arrived ahead of the rain. Perhaps in a little while I can show you how to draw electric fire from the clouds. I have always possessed a curious spirit from my earliest days, not the least of which about my ancestors. I learned that my family came from the village of Ecton in Northamptonshire, England, where they had lived for 300 years. I was the youngest son of the youngest son for five generations. My father, Josiah Franklin, had 17 children, seven by his first wife and 10 more by my mother, a Folger. I was born in Boston. As a boy living near the coast, I imagined a life at sea.
0: Papa! What's that, Sally? Are you talking to yourself again? No, I'm not
2: talking to myself. I have visitors.
0: (sighs) Please don't stay up too late, Father.
2: I promise. My daughter, Sarah. I call her Sally. She dotes on me. When I was a boy of seven, I filled my pocket with coppers I received for the Christmas holiday and visited a shop where they sold toys. Being charmed by the sound of a whistle, I voluntarily offered all my money for one, like this one. I came home and went whistling all over the house. Much pleased with my whistle, but disturbing all the family. My brothers and sisters and cousins, understanding the bargain I made, Told me I had spent four times as much as it was worth. They laughed at me and explained all the good things I might have bought with the rest of the money. Well, thinking about it gave me more chagrin than the whistle gave me pleasure. Now, whenever I am tempted to buy some unnecessary thing, I say to myself, Don't give too much for the whistle.' I believe that's when I first realized that a penny saved is a penny earned. I was always spending my money on books. My father, appreciating my bookish inclinations, determined to make me a printer. But I liked it much better than his candle business, but still had a hankering for the sea. My father, having lost one son to the Atlantic Ocean, had no desire to have me go to sea and was impatient to have me bound to my older brother James where I might learn the printing trade. I held out but at last signed the indentures when I was but 12 years old. I had to serve as an apprentice till I was 21 years of age. I made great proficiency in the business and became a useful hand to my brother and the best part my acquaintance with the apprentices of booksellers enabled me to borrow books. Often I sat up in my room reading the greatest part of the night, so that I could return to borrow a book early the next morning. But there was another bookish lad in Boston, John Collins by name, with whom I was acquainted. We sometimes disputed, and very fond we were of argument. I had caught the habit by reading my father's books of dispute about religion. I have since observed that persons of good sense seldom fall into the bad habit of being disagreeable by contradiction, except lawyers and university men. If you wish information and improvement from the knowledge of others, and yet at the same time express yourself as firmly fixed in your opinions, modest sensible men will probably leave you undisturbed in the possession of your error. "'The question was once raised between Collins and me "'of the propriety of educating the female sex. "'He was of the opinion that it was improper, "'but I took the contrary side, for dispute's sake. "'He was more eloquent and bore me down more by his fluency "'than by the strength of his reasons. "'After we parted company, I would sit down "'to put my arguments in writing. Three or four letters had passed between us, when my father happened to find those papers and read them. He talked to me about the manner of my writing, observed that though I had the advantage of my antagonist in correct spelling, I fell far short in elegance of expression and in clarity. This made me more attentive to my writing, determined to improve. My brother had in seventeen. 17- Twenty or 1721, you'll forgive the exactness of my memory, begun to print the New England Current. He had ingenious men among his friends who amused themselves by writing little pieces for this paper, which made it even more in demand. Hearing their accounts of how their papers were received made me excited to try my hand. But since I was still a boy, only 14 or 15, I suspected my brother would object to printing anything of mine if he knew it to be mine. So I disguised my hand, and, writing an anonymous paper, put it under the door of the printing house at night. I used the name Mrs. Silence Dogood. My brother found it in the morning and shared it with his writing friends. I had the exquisite pleasure of hearing it met with their approval, and when they tried to guess who might be the author, they only suggested men of character for learning and ingenuity. As you can imagine, this encouraged me. I wrote and anonymously submitted several more papers which were equally approved. I kept this secret for a while, submitting fourteen papers in all, one every few weeks for almost a year, until I finally made it known. Uh, This did not please my brother. He thought it tended to make me too vain. Uh, Perhaps I was. But I also expected more consideration from my brother, who only viewed himself as my master. Many of our disputes were settled by our father in my favor. My brother often beat me, and his harsh and tyrannical treatment gave me an aversion to arbitrary power, which has stuck with me all my life. Frankly, I found my apprenticeship tedious, and continually wished for a way of shortening it. Well, not long after, one of the pieces in our newspaper gave offence to the Assembly. James was taken up, censured, and imprisoned for a month because he would not disclose the author. I too was taken up and examined before the council. I did not give them any satisfaction. They contented themselves with admonishing me. Perhaps they considered that as an apprentice I was bound to keep my master's secrets. During my brother's confinement, I had the management of the paper and I made bold to give our rulers some rubs in it. But then an interesting thing happened. My brother's discharge was accompanied by an order of the house, a very odd one, that James Franklin should no longer print the paper called the New England Current. My brother decided to let it be printed under the name of Benjamin Franklin. My old indenture was returned to me with a full discharge on the back of it to be shown if the occasion became necessary. However, I was to sign new indentures for the remainder of the term, which were to be kept private. A very flimsy scheme it was, but the New England current continued under my name for several months. Finally, after a fresh difference arose between my brother and me, I asserted my freedom, presuming that he would not produce the new indentures. It was not fair of me to take this advantage, and this I therefore reckon as one of the first errata of my life. But the unfairness of it weighed little with me. I resented the blows his passion too often bestowed upon me. When he found out I would leave him, he prevented my getting employment in any other printing house in Boston. I decided to go to New York as the nearest place where there was a printer. Because of the secret indenture, there was still danger of my leaving Boston openly. If I had been caught I could have been forced to return to my brother's service. My friend Collins arranged with the captain of a New York sloop for my passage, under the story of my being a young acquaintance of his that had got a young girl with child, and whose friends would compel me to marry her. I sold some of my books to raise a little money, and was taken on board privately. With a fair wind in our sails in three days, I found myself in New York, 300 miles from home, a boy of but 17, without knowledge of any person and with very little money in my pocket. Once in New York, I offered my service to old Mr. William Bradford, who had been the first printer in Pennsylvania, but he had no employment. Imagine my chagrin at having traveled so far with no prospects. But then he told me his son had a print shop in Philadelphia, and that his assistant had recently died. If you go there, he said, I believe he may employ you. Well, Philadelphia was a hundred miles further. But I set out, and first landed in Philadelphia at about eight or nine o'clock on a Sunday morning at the Market Street wharf. I wore my work clothes, with the pockets stuffed with my shirts and stockings. I was dirty from my journey and fatigued. I didn't know a soul, nor where to get lodging. I gave the boatmen almost all of my money for the passage. At first they refused on account of my having helped row, but I insisted. A man is sometimes more generous when he has little money than when he has plenty, <laughs> perhaps through fear of being thought to have but a little. I made my way up the street until I found a boy selling bread, and asked for 3 pennyworth of any sort. He gave me three great puffy rolls, and with no room in my pockets, I walked off with a roll under each arm and eating the other. That was my arrival in Philadelphia, which has been my home for more than sixty years. I still recall that day as I traveled up Market Street, passing by the door of Mr. Reed, and there Deborah Reed first gazed on my most awkward and ridiculous appearance. Later I took lodgings in Mr. Reed's house and increasingly enjoyed Deborah's company. Over the years the affection grew between us, and I took her to wife, September 1, 1730. She proved a good and faithful helpmate. We thrive together and endeavor to make each other happy.
1: Have you got any suggestions for married life? Keep your eyes wide
2: open before marriage, half shut afterwards. (laughs) Recently, I advised a young man who visited with me just like you are now, that a single man has not nearly the value he would have in the state of marital union. He is an incomplete animal resembling the odd half of a pair of scissors. But should he not take my counsel and decide to take a mistress? I told him he should prefer old women to young ones. You may call this a paradox, but here are eight reasons. First, because they have more knowledge of the world, which makes their conversation more lastingly agreeable. Second, when women cease to be handsome, they study to be good. Third, there is no hazard of children. Fourth, because through experience they are more prudent and discreet in conducting an intrigue to prevent suspicion. Fifth, because as in the dark all cats are gray, the pleasure of corporal enjoyment with an old woman is at least equal and frequently superior, every knack being by practice capable of improvement. Sixth, the sin is less... Debauching a virgin may be her ruin and make her unhappy for life. Seventh, because the compunction is less. Making a young girl miserable may give you frequent bitter reflections, none of which can attend making an old woman happy. Eighth, and lastly, they are so grateful. Has it ever occurred to you that we give the name of sin to so many of our pleasures, that we might enjoy them the more. Well, after arriving in Philadelphia in 1723, I discovered that there were two printers and I settled in at Keimer's printing shop. I later acquired it in a partnership. And when the partnership dissolved in 1729, at the age of 23, I was the sole publisher of the Pennsylvania Gazette. Poor Richard's Almanac, which I wrote using the name Richard Saunders started in 1733 and continued every year until 1757. Every profession has its woes, but the printing business. Printers are educated in the belief that when there are differences of opinion, both sides should be heard. And when truth and error have fair play, the former is always an overmatch for the latter. If printers were determined not to print anything until they were sure it would offend nobody, (laughs) there would be very little printed. A parable to illustrate the point. A man and his son were traveling toward a market town with a jackass they had to sell. The road was bad, and the son walked while the older man rode the ass. The first person they met chastised the man for allowing his son to walk in the mire. Thereafter both men rode the ass not long after they were accosted by persons who said it was unmerciful for both of them to get on the back of that poor ass in such a deep road whereupon the man got off and let his son ride alone but still others seeing these circumstances said the old man was a fool and soon they were both walking and leading the jackass by the halter they met more company on the road who called them a couple of blockheads for going on foot in such a dirty road when they might ride the old man could bear it no longer my son he said it grieves me much that we cannot please all these people let us throw the ass over the next bridge and be no further troubled with him A printing business is for the enlightenment and entertainment of its readers. I published stories which, having found their way to print, were thought to be fact. Such was the speech of Miss Polly Baker, prosecuted in Connecticut for having a bastard child. May it please the Honorable Honorable Bench,
0: Bench, I am a poor, unhappy woman who have no money for a lawyer to plead for me. This is the fifth time, gentlemen, that I have been dragged before your court on the same charge. Twice I have paid heavy fines, and twice have been brought to public punishment for want of money to pay those fines. I think this law by which I am punished is unreasonable, and particularly severe with regard to me who have lived an inoffensive life. I have brought five children into the world at the risk of my life, and maintained them well by my own industry. Can it be a crime to add to the number of the king's subjects in a new country that really wants people? I readily consented to the only proposal of marriage that was ever made when I was a virgin. I trusted him, and he got me with child, and then forsook me. That very person is a magistrate of this county, and I had hoped he would have appeared on my behalf. If mine is a religious offence, leave it, gentlemen, to religious punishments. Reflect on the horrid consequences of this law. "'How many distressed mothers have been driven "'by the terror of punishment and public shame "'to procure an abortion? "'On the other hand, "'consider the growing number of bachelors, "'many of whom have never sincerely courted a woman in their lives. "'Is theirs not a greater offense against the public good? "'Poor young women, "'whom custom has forbid to solicit men, "'are severely punished if they do their duty without them. "'Yes,' gentlemen. I venture to call it duty. A duty the steady performance of which I have not been deterred. Therefore, in my humble opinion, instead of a whipping, I I ought ought to have a statue statue erected erected in my my memory. memory.
2: It is reported that the court was so moved that they dispensed with her punishment, and one of the judges married her the next day. As Voltaire said, we have a natural right to make use of our pens as of our tongues at our peril, risk, and hazard. There was a time when wood was plentiful and close at hand for heating our homes by means of the fireplace. But I invented an open stove for the better warming of rooms, and at the same time saving fuel as the fresh air admitted was warmed in entering. To promote the demand, I wrote a pamphlet on the new stove. The governor offered me a patent for the sole vending of them, but I declined. I felt as we have the advantages of the inventions of others, we should be glad to serve others freely and generously by any invention of ours. An ironmonger in London, however, after studying a good deal of my pamphlet, made small changes in the machine and got a patent for it over there. He has made, I'm told a little fortune by it. I believe that happiness is produced not so much by great pieces of good fortune that seldom happen as by little advantages that occur every day. It was in this spirit that I made one of my greatest discoveries. Have you noticed the sun gives light as soon as it rises? (laughs) Of course you have. I ask you, to what advantage do we put this light when it shines in our windows at, say, five o'clock in the morning? none we employ shutters and heavy drapes to keep it out and then we use candles at the end of the day to prolong our waking instead we should adjust our daily routine in the six months between march twentieth and september twentieth to rise early just as the sun rises think of the savings in wax and tallow per hour all of the difficulty will be in the first few days Every morning, as soon as the sun rises, let all the bells in every church ring. If that is not sufficient, let cannon be fired in the streets to wake the sluggards. Oblige a man to rise at four in the morning, and he will willingly go to bed at eight in the evening and rise more willingly the next morning. By 1748, I had a modest fortune that I could retire from the active printing business to devote the rest of my life to philosophical studies and civic causes. I was not the first to speculate on the relationship between lightning and electricity. I wrote a paper comparing twelve similar properties, including their being conducted by metals, giving off a crack and exploding, and a sulphurous smell. Never before was I engaged in any study that so engrossed my attention. I suggested that since electricity is attracted by points, sharp pointed iron rods should be erected on high buildings, so that when a thundercloud passes over, the rod will draw the electric fire, and that a man using an insulated handle to hold a wire might then draw sparks from the electrified iron rod. I wrote... Let the experiment begin. I proved my own theory, using a kite made of silk, uh, to better withstand the wind and wet without tearing, and to which I attached a very sharp pointed wire, rising a foot or more above the wood. At the end of the twine I tied a silk ribbon and fastened a key. If you want to try your hand at this experiment, you must stand within a door or a window and take care that the silk ribbon does not get wet. When thunder clouds come over the kite, the kite will become electrified. Loose filaments of twine will stand out. and electric fire will stream from the key on the approach of your knuckle. I have always believed that when the last comes, it is better to have it said, He lived usefully, than he died rich. You may remember the words of the ancient poet we all studied at school. A man of words and not of deeds is like a garden full of weeds." 'Tis pity that good works among some sorts of people are so little valued, And good words admired in their stead. They have inverted the old verse, and now say, a man of deeds and not of words is like a garden full (laughs) of— I have forgot the rhyme, but remember, tis something the very reverse of perfume. I formed most of my ingenious acquaintances into a club for mutual improvement, which we called the Junto. We met on Friday evenings and required that each member in turn produce a query on a point of morals, politics, or philosophy to be discussed by the company. This greatly improved our habits of conversation, and we followed strict rules to prevent our disgusting one another. This same group helped me when I set out on my first project of a public nature a subscription library. They helped find 50 subscribers at 40 shillings each to begin with and 10 shillings a year for 50 years. This was the mother of all the North American subscription libraries, now so numerous. They have made the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent as most gentlemen from other countries and contributed in some degree to the stand made throughout the colonies in defense of our privileges. After all, the only thing more expensive than education is ignorance. In a similar way, we formed a company for the extinguishing of fires. Every member had to keep in good order a number of leather buckets, with strong bags and baskets to assist in transporting possessions. More persons desired to be admitted, and they were encouraged to form their own companies. And this went on, one new company being formed after another, until it included most of the inhabitants of Philadelphia who were men of property. This city has never lost by fire more than two houses at a time since these institutions were established. You've heard my expression. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Originally, it referred to fire prevention. These days, I enjoy playing chess, often competing with myself. Over here, you can see I'm in the middle of a game. But chess is not merely an idle amusement. Several very valuable qualities of the mind useful in the course of human life are to be acquired or strengthened by it, so that they become habits ready on all occasions. We may learn foresight, look into the future and consider the consequences of an action. We learn circumspection. Surveying the whole scene, we can see the relationships, the dangers they are exposed to, the possibilities of their aiding each other and what moves the adversary may make, as well as what means can be used to avoid his attack or to turn its consequences against him. It's time to move my black knight to the open space at D3. Hopefully that won't get me into trouble. Uh, Seeing it from the other side of the table, I'm not so sure. Third, we learn caution, not to make our moves too hastily. This is best acquired by strictly observing the laws of the game, such as if you touch a piece, you must move it. If you set it down, you must let it stand. The game thereby becomes much more the image of human life. Lastly, we learn the habit of not being discouraged by present appearances in our own state of affairs. The game is so full of events and so frequently after long contemplation, one discovers the means of extricating oneself from a supposed insurmountable difficulty. Ah, do you see it? I can now take his pawn at F7 with my white knight and put him into check. We'll see how he gets out of that. I have taken great pleasure in the discovery of new things, such as the movement of the tides and the working habits of insects and contemplating these little things as well as the universe. This curiosity and my writings on it put me in the company of learned men and I was conferred honorary degrees so that everyone began to call me Dr. Franklin. THE AMERICAN PHILOSOPHICAL SOCIETY WHICH I HAD HELPED FOUND MADE ME ITS PRESIDENT, AN HONOR I CONTINUED TO HOLD WITH GREAT ESTEEM. MY MUSINGS WERE NOT MERELY ON MATTERS EPHEMERAL, BUT THOSE WITH UTILITY. FOR EXAMPLE, IT IS UNIVERSALLY WELL KNOWN THAT IN DIGESTING OUR FOOD THERE IS CREATED IN THE BOWELS A GREAT QUANTITY OF WIND. But I suggested to the Royal Academy that their prize question should be to discover some drug to be mixed with our food that shall render the natural discharges of wind from our bodies not only inoffensive but agreeable as perfumes. Well, just think of it. All well-bred people, to avoid giving offense, forcibly restrain the efforts of nature to discharge that wind. Were it not for the odiously the offensive smell accompanying such escapes? Polite people would be under no more restraint in discharging such wind in company. For mind you, if a man dines on stale flesh, especially with much addition of onions, it shall afford a stink that no company can tolerate. Who knows, but what a little powder of lime taken in our food, or, or a glass of lime water taken with dinner, may have the same effect on the air issuing from our bowels as does a little quicklime thrown into the jakes. I say you, this is worth the experiment. We already know that a few stems of asparagus give our urine a disagreeable odor. Why then should it be thought impossible to find a means of making a perfume out of our wind? I asked my fellow philosophers to consider what comfort the vortices of Descartes Gives to a man who has whirlwinds in his bowels. Can the pleasure arising from seeing threads of light Separated by the Newtonian prism into seven colors, Can it compare with the ease and comfort Every man might feel seven times a day By freely discharging his wind? In short, this invention would, as Bacon expresses it, Bring philosophy home to men's business and bosoms. My scent, immense, exactly.
0: (laughs) Father, what are you doing?
2: I'm just sharing a laugh with my visitors. It's getting late. You
0: need your rest.
2: But I'm enjoying their company. Don't worry, my dear. I'll get to bed soon enough. (sighs) I saw the divisions grow between the colonies and the mother country from both sides of the Atlantic Ocean spending a long time as agent for Pennsylvania and later the Massachusetts Bay Colony in London. In 1754, when the French encroached on lands of the crown and interrupted commerce with the Indians, representatives of the colonies met in Albany to consider a plan of union for their common defense. I was there as one of the Pennsylvania delegation English America thought itself sufficiently able to cope with the French. In former wars, Americans withstood the enemy unassisted by the mother country. In the Union we proposed, the people of Great Britain and the people of the colonies would consider themselves not as belonging to a different community with different interests, but to one community with one interest. The Albany Plan was not approved in London. Instead, a new plan required the governors of the colonies to erect forts and raise troops for self-defense, which would be paid from the British Treasury, and then reimbursed by a tax laid on the colonies. I wrote to the London Chronicle that excluding the people of the colonies in the decision will give them extreme dissatisfaction, as well as taxing them by act of parliament where they have no representative, where heavy burdens are to be laid on them, It has been found useful to make it their own act, for they bear it better when they have, or think they have, some say in the matter. It did not change. We are all born ignorant, but one must work hard to remain stupid. That's how I felt about the British government. In the early 1770s, Thomas Hutchison was the governor of Massachusetts Bay. Mind you, not the elected governor, but the royal governor. He wrote letters to the Prime Minister's secretary urging drastic measures against the colonies, including an abridgment of English liberties. For well, these letters came into my hands from a member of Parliament, and I sent them to the Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, with instructions to show the letters to colonial leaders, not to copy or print them, and then return them to me. In spite of my cautions, they were printed in Boston and found their way to London. As I have often said, three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. A man was accused of stealing the letters and challenged to a duel by an agent of the prime minister's secretary. The duel was held in Hyde Park Fortunately, neither man died in the contest, but I felt it was incumbent upon me to state my involvement in transmitting the letters, not private letters, mind you, but written by public officers to persons in public stations on public affairs. For my mischief in the matter, I was relieved of my post as Deputy Postmaster General and labeled the true incendiary. My effectiveness as an agent for the colonies in England was over. I had been too long in London, so much so that my Deborah's loneliness grew. She wrote of being low in spirits, and her health was not good. This letter did not arrive until February, dated December 24, 1774, from my son William.
1: I came here on Thursday last to attend the funeral of my poor old mother who died the Monday noon preceding. Mr. Bache,
2: That's Sally's husband.
1: sent his clerk with the news which reached me on Tuesday evening, and I set out early the next morning. The weather was severe and snowing hard, and I did not arrive until about four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, about a half an hour before the corpse was to be moved for interment. Her death was no more than might be expected after the paralytic stroke she received some time ago, which greatly affected her memory and understanding. She told me she never expected to see you again unless you return this winter, for she was sure she would not live till next summer. I heartily wish you had come over in the fall, as I think her disappointment preyed a good deal on her spirits. Your dutiful son
2: work as if you were to live a hundred years pray as if you were to die tomorrow we have an english proverb that says he that would thrive must ask his wife it was lucky for me that i had a wife as much disposed to industry and frugality as myself she assisted me cheerfully in my business tending shop chasing old linen rags for the paper maker We kept no idle servants. Our table was plain and simple, our furniture of the cheapest. For a long time I ate my breakfast out of a two-penny earthen porringer with a pewter spoon. One morning, being called to breakfast, I found it in a china bowl with a spoon of silver, for they had been bought without my knowledge by my wife and had cost her the enormous sum of three and twenty shillings, for which she had no apology to make, but that she thought her husband deserved a silver spoon and china bowl, as well as any of his neighbors. When I was a boy, my father frequently repeated a proverb of Solomon, Seest thou a man diligent in his calling? He shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before mean men. I did not think that I should literally stand before kings. I have stood before five and even had the honor of sitting down to dinner with the King of Denmark. I was religiously educated as a Presbyterian and I regularly paid my annual support for the only Presbyterian minister we had in Philadelphia. He used to admonish me to attend his administrations and and now and then I was prevailed upon to do so. Once for five. Five successive weeks. Had he been, in my opinion, a good preacher, I might have continued. His discourses were very dry and uninteresting, and appeared to have the aim of making us Presbyterians rather than good citizens. One Sunday he used the text from the fourth chapter of Philippians.
0: Finally,
1: brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, Lovely or of good report, if there be any virtue or any praise, think on these things.
2: I could not imagine a sermon on that text in which we would miss having some morality, but he confined himself to
1: five points only. One, keep holy the Sabbath day. Two, be diligent in reading the Holy Scriptures. Three, attend public worship. Four, Partake of the sacrament, five. Pay due respect to God's ministers.
2: Now these might all be good things, but they were not the kind of good things I expected of the text. I attended his preaching no more. All religions here, and we have a great variety, have experienced my good will in assisting them with subscriptions for building their new places of worship. And as I have never opposed any of their doctrines, I hope to go out of the world in peace with them all. In vino veritas. Truth is in wine. Before Noah, men having nothing but water to drink went astray, became abominably wicked and were justly exterminated by water, which they loved to drink. For the good man Noah, seeing that through this pernicious beverage all his contemporaries had perished, took it in aversion. To quench his thirst, God created the vine and revealed to him the means of converting its fruit into wine. Ever since that time, the word to divine has been in common use, signifying originally to discover by means of wine. You may remember the miracle at Cana, converting water to wine, we may be tempted to repeat the miracle and convert common water into that species of wine we call punch. My Christian brother, be kind and benevolent like God and do not spoil his good drink. I mean, the apostle Paul counseled Timothy very seriously to put wine into his water for the sake of his health, but not one of the apostles ever recommended putting water into wine. To confirm our gratitude to divine providence, reflect upon the elbow. Animals who drink from the waters that flow upon the earth, if they have long legs, they also have a long neck so that they can get to their drink without kneeling down. But man who was destined to drink wine must be able to raise the glass to his mouth. If the elbow had been placed near the hand, it would have been too short to bring the glass up to the mouth. And if it had been placed near the shoulder, that part of the arm would have been so long that it would carry the wine far beyond the mouth. But we are enabled to drink at ease, the glass going exactly to the mouth. Let us adore this benevolent wisdom. Let us adore and drink. Every time I light a candle, it brings back memories of my father, who was a candlemaker. He died at the age of eighty-nine, having raised thirteen children reputably. He could draw well and was skilled in music. In the evening, after the business of the day was over, he would sometimes play psalm tunes on his violin and sing. It was very agreeable to hear. At table, he'd like to have a sensible friend or neighbor to converse with always took care to start a useful topic for discourse which might improve the minds of his children. In that way, he turned our attention to what was good, just, and prudent. Perhaps the most valuable lesson I learned from my father is diligence is the mother of good luck. Oh, oh I have had a visit from my enemy. Her name is Gout. She reproaches me as a glutton and a tippler. Now, all the world that knows me will allow that I am neither. In painful twinges, she bids me exercise. Uh, uh, I take uh, oh, as much exercise uh, uh, as I can. Oh, Please, madam, you know my sedentary state, if you might spare me a little. It is not altogether my fault. It, it's true, madam Gout, that after a breakfast of four dishes of tea with cream, one or two buttered toasts with slices of salted beef that I go immediately to my oh, oh, oh writing desk. Oh, pray, madam, a truce with your corrections. It is not fair to say I take no exercise when I do very often, going out to dine and returning in my carriage. Oh, 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 no, I don't suppose a half-hour carriage ride is that much exercise. What then shall I do with my carriage? Burn it! Oh, thank you for your visit, but pray you discontinue them. One had better die than be cured so dolefully. Oh, oh, for heaven's sake, leave me. I promise faithfully never more to play at chess, but to exercise daily and live temperately. Ah, oh, she knows me too well. But after a few months of good health, I will return to my old habits, and promises will be forgotten like last year's clouds.
1: Ben, tell us about the revolution.
2: Long did I endeavor with unfeigned and unwearied zeal to preserve from breaking that fine and noble China vase, the British Empire. For I knew that once broken, the separate parts could not retain their share of the strength and value that existed in the whole, and that a perfect reunion of those parts could scarce be hoped for. I wrote this letter to my old friend William Strahan, a London printer, in July of 1775. You are a member of Parliament, and of that majority which has doomed my country to destruction. You have begun to burn our towns and murder our people. Look upon your hands. They are stained with the blood of your relations. You and I were long friends. You are now my enemy and I am yours, B. Franklin. I could not send it to my friend, but I meant every word. In 1765, the British Parliament adopted the Stamp Act, which changed forever the temper of Americans toward the mother country. Some of you look too young to remember when paper goods were taxed, newspapers, pamphlets, legal documents, even playing cards. To show that the tax had been paid, a stamp was affixed. Before 1765, we submitted willingly to the government of the crown. Numerous as the people are in the colonies, they cost nothing in forts, citadels, garrisons, or armies, and were governed only at the expense of a little pen, ink, and paper. Americans did not question the authority of Parliament. There was only affection for Great Britain for its laws, customs and manners, and even a fondness for its fashions that greatly increased the commerce. Natives of Britain were always treated with particular regard. To be an old England man was a character of some respect and gave them a kind of rank among us. But then the mother country chose to restrain trade, prohibit the bringing of foreign gold into the colonies, Demanded a new and heavy tax by stamps, while at the same time taking away trial by jury and refusing to hear humble petitions. In these actions, they deprived us of the common rights of Englishmen as declared in the Magna Carta. I was questioned on these very points in the House of Commons when I served as agent for Pennsylvania, and I said the same thing. Parliament repealed the Stamp Act but asserted new rights of taxation, and attempted to get the colonies to pay for the cost of the unused stamps. That was something like the Frenchman who used to accost Englishmen on Port Neuf with many compliments and a red-hot iron in his hand. Pray, Monsieur Anglais, let me have the honor of thrusting this hot iron into your backside. Be gone with your iron, or I will break your head. Nay, Monsieur, if you do not choose, then I will not insist but will you at least in justice have the goodness to pay me something for the heating of my iron? The tyranny of the monarch and his parliament had been revealed. Separation from the mother country had never been done before, and there was no unanimity of opinion among the citizenry. Some were loyalists to the British monarch. My son William was the royal governor of New Jersey. He was a thorough courtier, seeing everything through the government's eyes. Nothing has ever hurt me so much as finding myself deserted in my old age by my only son, and not only deserted, but to find him taking up arms against me in a cause where my fame, fortune, and life were all at stake. Our cause was just. The increasing encroachments on our liberty required action They that can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Thomas Paine articulated the ideas of liberty and stirred the passions of the people. From the east to the west,
1: blow the trumpet to arms. Through the land, let the sound of it flee. Let the far and the near all unite with a cheer in defense of our
2: liberty tree. In common sense, Payne wrote, Society
1: in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one.
2: At Lexington and Concord, the British moved against us. I returned to America from my days as an agent in London and was elected to the Continental Congress which met here in Philadelphia. In July of 1776, the Congress adopted a noble statement asserting to all the world our independence from the tyranny of the King and Mother Britain. A promising young man from Virginia, Thomas
1: Jefferson, gave our cause its voice. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. or abolish it, and to institute new government.
2: Abolishing tyranny
1: was not achieved easily. Seven years
2: of conflict was required to end it. I served the Congress as Minister to France to enlist their support in our cause, and later, along with John Adams and John Jay, negotiated the peace treaty with Great Britain. Once at a dinner at Versailles, the British minister offered a toast to George III, likening him to the sun. But then the French minister toasted Louis XVI, comparing him to the moon. Then it was my turn. George Washington, commander of the American armies, who, like Joshua of old, commanded the sun and moon to stand still, and they obeyed him. I rejoice at the return of peace. I hope it will be lasting and that mankind will at length have reason and sense enough to settle their differences without cutting throats. In my opinion, there never was a good war or a bad peace. Consider what vast additions to the convenience and comfort of living might have been acquired if the money spent in war had been employed in works of public utility. What edifices and improvements might have been obtained in doing good, which in the last war has been spent in doing mischief, in bringing misery to thousands of families and destroying the lives of so many working people. We now labor as a people to make our new nation, our democracy work. A general government is necessary for us, but when we assemble representatives to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, We inevitably invite all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. How can a perfect product be expected? We would do well to follow Thomas Paine's wise words. When we are planning for posterity, we ought to remember that virtue is not hereditary. I spoke frankly to the Constitutional Convention. There are two passions which have a powerful influence in the affairs of men, ambition and avarice, the love of power and the love of money. Place before the eyes of men a post of honor that shall at the same time be a place of profit, and they will move heaven and earth to obtain it. Struggles for power and money are the source of all factions perpetually dividing the nation. Those who will strive for this preeminence will not be the wise moderates. No, they will be bold men of strong passions and indefatigable in their selfish pursuits. Our new constitution has an appearance that promises permanency, but in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. While I served as minister to France, I found that the spectacles which were best to see what I was eating were not the best to see the faces of those on the other side of the table. When one's ears are not accustomed to the sound of a language, the movements and the features of him that speaks helps to explain I had the glasses cut and half of each kind required for reading or distance placed in the circle. By this means, I wear my spectacles constantly only having to move my eyes up or down. Through this invention, I was able to understand French.
1: After all your experience, Ben, what advice would you give to those of us just setting out in life?
2: Haste makes waste. Uh, Or perhaps the words of Alexander Pope, Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. I can tell you this. Well done is better than well said. The best thing you can give to your enemy is forgiveness. To an opponent, tolerance. To a friend, your heart. To your child, a good example. To a father, deference. To your mother, conduct that will make her proud of you. To yourself, respect. And to all others, charity. And this I know. We stand at the crossroads, each minute, each hour, each day, making choices. We choose the thoughts we allow ourselves to think, the passions we allow ourselves to feel, and the actions we perform. Each choice is made in the context of the value system we have selected to govern our lives. In selecting that value system, we are making the most important choice we will ever make. Ah, listen! Sally's playing the glass harmonica. Another one of my inventions. My Deborah used to call it the music of the angels. I got the idea when I witnessed a concert where a man played music, using a variety of glasses, each filled with enough water to create a different note. He made sound by rubbing a moistened finger along the edge of the glass. Instead, I arranged various sized bowls along a rod that could be turned by means of a foot pedal. Have you heard of Mozart? I met the young genius in Paris. He was intrigued with my new instrument. I'm told he plans to write several pieces for it. Sally's not fooling me. She's reminding me that I should not stay up too late. I mentioned Paris. France is the most civil nation upon the earth. Your first acquaintances endeavour to find out what you like, and they tell others. Somebody, it seems, gave it out that I loved ladies, and then everybody presented me to their ladies, or the ladies presented themselves, to be embraced. That is, to have their necks kissed. Kissing of lips or cheeks is not the mode in France. The first is reckoned rude and the other may rub off the paint. The French ladies have a thousand other ways of rendering themselves agreeable by their various attentions and civilities and their sensible conversation, are delightful people to live with. There was a particular lady of my acquaintance during my years in Paris, Madame Helvetius. She resisted all of my proposals for marriage She announced her intention to remain single out of respect to her departed husband. I thought that telling her of a dream I had might change her mind. Uh, Madam, I found myself in Elysian fields. Asked if I desired to see anyone in particular, I said, lead me to the philosophers. I was told there were two nearby, Socrates and Helvetius. Well, because I understand a little French and not one word of Greek, I asked to see Helvetius. Your late husband received me with great courtesy and asked many questions about affairs of state, life in Paris, and mutual friends. But he asked nothing of you, my dear Madame Helvetius, for she loves you excessively, I assured him. Ah, he said, you remember my former felicity. But it is necessary to forget it to be happy here. I have taken another wife. Remain with me and you will see her. At these words the new Madame Helvetius entered, and I recognized her to be my Deborah. I approached her eagerly, but she kept me at a distance, saying, I was your good wife for nearly half a century. Be content with that. I have formed a new connection which will endure to eternity. I suddenly decided to leave those ungrateful spirits, to return to the good earth, to see again the sunshine and you, Madame Helvetius. Here I am. Let us revenge ourselves. It was not meant to be. Our Declaration of Independence tells us that all men are created equal. In this spirit of liberty, in which we have lately immersed ourselves, I have been soliciting support, for the abolition of slavery, and relief for free Negroes held in bondage. Slavery is such an atrocious debasement of human nature. The unhappy man has long been treated as a brute animal, galling chains binding his body. Under such circumstances, freedom may often prove a misfortune to himself and prejudicial to society. Attention to emancipated black people must become our national policy to furnish them with employment and their children with an education. Contributing to their emancipation is a serious duty incumbent upon us all. It will promote the public good and the happiness of our much neglected fellow creatures. As I have often said, a little neglect may breed great mischief. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. And for want of a horse, the rider was lost. The companions of my youth are almost all departed, but I find agreeable company among their children and grandchildren, and of course, your visit today. I have enough public business to preserve me from boredom and amusement in conversation, books, my garden, and cribbage. We play chess, not for the money, but for the pleasure of beating one another. We play cards sometimes in long winter evenings. I think of the advice I gave in poor Richard's almanac. Do not squander time, for that's the stuff life is made of. But then I shuffle the cards again and begin another game. Still, people write letters which permits me the opportunity of expressing myself. I was asked my opinion on the deity, when I stretch my imagination through and beyond our system of planets, beyond the visible fixed stars into that space that is in every way infinite, and conceive it filled with suns like ours, each with a chorus of worlds forever moving around it. This little ball on which we move seems, even in my narrow imagination, to be almost nothing, and myself less than nothing. It would be a great vanity in me to suppose that the supremely perfect does, in the least regard, such an inconsiderable nothing as man. Still, there is in all men something which inclines us to the worship of unseen power. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting his conduct in this one. These I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion. Another man inquired of my views on Jesus. But as to Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I perceive it has received various corrupting changes. As to his divinity, I do not dogmatize upon it, since I soon expect the opportunity of knowing the truth. Besides, I do not perceive that the Supreme Being takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers with any peculiar marks of his displeasure. It is soon time for bed. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Early to bed at my age is not a problem, but rising early. As poor Richard said, All would live long, but none would be old. I find myself captivated more by dreams of the future than the history of the past. I regret that I was born too soon. Imagine the height to which we may be carried in a thousand years the power of man over matter. Perhaps we will learn to deprive large masses of their gravity and give them levity for easy transport. Agriculture may diminish its labor and double its produce. All diseases may be prevented or cured, including even old age. Our lives lengthened at pleasure beyond Methuselah. Unfortunately, our moral position does not seem to be making the same kind of rapid progress as science. If it were, men would cease to be wolves to one another. And human beings would learn what we'd lately call humanity. A good friend died recently, and I had the task of offering condolences. We are spirits. That these bodies are led to us while they can afford us pleasure, assist us in acquiring knowledge or in doing good to our fellow creatures, is a kind and benevolent act of God. When they become unfit for these purposes, when they afford us pain instead of pleasure, instead of aid, become an encumbrance. It is equally a kind and benevolent act of God that a way is provided by which we may get rid of them. Death is that way. These mortal bodies must be laid aside when the soul is to enter into real life. We are in an embryo state, a preparation for living. Our friend is newly born among the immortals. He is invited, as we shall be, abroad on a party of pleasure which is to last forever. His chair was ready first and he has gone on before us. After all, we could not all conveniently start together. And why should you and I be grieved at this since we are soon to follow and know where to find him? Long ago, I wrote the words which I should like to be my epitaph, the body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here food for worms but the work shall not be lost for it will as he believed appear once more in a new and more elegant edition revised and corrected by the author
1: adieu my good friends
0: Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for an interview with director Eric Scotto and playwright and our very own Ben Franklin, Ray Flint, coming out next Friday. For more information about the cast, visit our website at standbyforplaces.org.